millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the New Statesman's new-ish culture podcast, The Back Half. I'm the New Statesman culture editor, Tom Gatti, and you are? I am the New Statesman's arts editor, Kate Mossman. And this podcast, which is now on its third episode, is sort of our safe space for discussing things away from the judgmental and prying ears of our colleagues upstairs. So we're down in the New Statesman bunker and we can talk rubbish Mm -hmm. effectively down here without um, judgment without judgment exactly without fear or favor it's called the back half because we edit the back half of the new statesman which is where all the cultural action happens and at this point i usually say we're covering things like theater and visual art but actually we haven't we haven't done so (laughs) i probably better not say that again we've done fun pop music and films so far and television television Uh, easy things so uh the the low-hanging fruit (laughs) of the cultural world so i will say visual art and theater but not until we've actually got something to say about and you will warn me when i have to read a book and give me a month the long time frame mission of this podcast is to make Kate read a book. And <laughs> I think if if we accomplish that and, and nothing else, um, we will have achieved something significant. Yeah, I think so. So, Kate, what are we going to be talking about today? So we're going to be talking about Morrissey and his already controversial appearance for Six Music yesterday in Maida Bell Studios and the new David Simon epic, The Juice, about the early years of the porn industry in New York. And then we're also going to have our non-anniversary, which of course is the not particularly important or interesting anniversary of a thing a few years ago, maybe not an even number of years or anything significant. So Kate, on Monday we went to see Morrissey at Maida Vale Studios in London for BBC Six Music Live, which is a week of live performances at Maida Vale. Had you ever been in a room with him before? Never. Me neither? No. It was like a rare animal let out of a cage. And it was the hot ticket of the week, wasn't Mm -hmm. it? We actually felt rather guilty standing there in the queue as sort of interested but not particularly passionate followers. Neutral observers. Neutral observers. Who became excited as it continued and actually thought it was really great and of course came out and saw the I think the polite word is shitstorm about the fact that he'd made a joke about Amory Waters of UKIP and it was a very interesting experience it, it reminded me a bit of when people are at Glastonbury having the best Glastonbury ever and people sitting at home watching it on TV are tweeting about how crap it is yeah. and it is it's like a completely polarised experience in that room when he made his comment which amounted to saying something like Amory Waters head of UKIP oh she's, she wasn't actually the voter was rigged. Yeah. It was just a bad joke that fell flat to the point where he said, you didn't get that, and then moved swiftly on to something else. And in my notes, I have a, a little note saying, moment of tension. <laughs> and maybe I'm just really stupid, but that moment of tension, as far as I was concerned, was the fact that it was a crap joke. And also mentioning UKIP 
yeah. generally creates a moment of tension within a sort of uh, liberal pop music loving crowd. A bit uncomfortable, but it's yeah. typical of his, you know, his modern day self-sabotaging Katie Hopkins act, which is that he just likes to say reactionary things mm. because he gets headlines. He can't resist it. Mm. And I think that what we did take away from it was that you cannot underestimate the searing heartache that actual Morrissey fans feel when they watch this genius continue to go off the rails, bash his head into walls, do these culturally embarrassing things. Whereas for you and I, it was just an amazing chance to see this person in the flesh. And I found him quite amusing. I mean, apart from that, there there were some quite good kind of working men's club jokes there. What do you think? Yeah, he opened up with saying, it's the crack of noon and I've been made available. Uh, (laughs) but do you think maybe this is a case of again being in the room the jokes were funny because the magic animal was saying them and when you listen to them on the radio broadcast people were actually cringing and thinking that didn't work yeah if we just deal with all the politics because it was for someone whose essential message is don't pay any attention to politics it was sort of loaded with political content so you talk about self-sabotaging for a start you know he turns up for a bbc session which is live and being streamed and shown on television as well wearing a fuck trump badge which the bbc were terribly upset yeah, about like, what do we do we pixelate How do we it out, out? <laughs> yeah. um so he makes a weird joke about ukip talks about um, the westminster quagmire of political filth yeah um governed by theresa may who, who someone in the audience shouts fuck theresa may and he goes i'd rather not which actually uh, again we laughed at the time but it's not a very good joke no is it? no of course it isn't <laughs> and then there was a bit of um catalonian independence there was wasn't free there? spain tying free into his catalonia fighting yeah, yeah free catalonia from spain free the bull from spain free everyone from spain, free everyone which from spain. <laughs> but those comments kind of went by the way i mean tell me what he looked like because that was interesting yeah well you us. described him as a magic animal a minute ago which <laughs> I, I thought was um was quite a nice description actually because I'm sure this point must be made, but for all his sort of bullfighting rhetoric, he does have something of both of the bull and of the bullfighter about him, doesn't he? He's got this... Regal. Yeah, he's got this strong neck and this very noble profile. And he he conducts himself in these very small but controlled movements. Mm. Like the way he operates the mic stand is... um, He sort of coaxes it from one hand to the other with head cocked to one side, looking rather kind of beautiful in a funny kind of way. And he was wearing... He famously doesn't wear a shirt a lot these days, which upsets people almost as much as his UKIP comments. But he had a sort of felt jacket on with with piping and then these sort of strange medals hanging from his trousers. Religious pendants. Religious pendants. Yeah. (laughs) So he had a crucifix on one leg and I couldn't work out what was on the other leg. But then also a crucifix around his neck and a bull's head around his neck. And a bull's head, yeah. yeah. And he had his band is, um, I mean, there's Spanish dudes in his band that he's had been playing with for quite a while. And there was this moment when one of them, I, I can't remember the guy's name, but he comes <clears> Spanish forward, speaking. Okay. Spanish speaking like, yeah. uh, guy comes forward and, and sings a Morrissey song in, mm. in Spanish. And it reminded me a bit of um, that scene in The Life Aquatic when you've got the guy singing David Bowie songs in Portuguese at the top oh, of the yes. mask. Yeah, so yeah. They, I almost had a flash forward to the, just that sort of poignant feeling that, you know, this guy is still with us. This is, a, this is one of the most important figures that popular music has ever seen. Mm. We don't know what to make of him at the moment because he's kind of a bit terrible and a bit great. And, you know, it reminds me of the way um, people didn't know what to make of Michael Jackson at certain mm. points. And then, and then you know, one day we'll be looking back and going, wow. There's something really in- enjoyable, though, about a performer who's so in command of his material and of the performance. It's just the kind of utter confidence and control and... and so the backing is a really quite straightforward kind of muscular rock sound, but unusually for that sound, the vocals are completely clearly enunciated over the top. And I, I suppose justified by the fact that his, with 
there's the occasional dud note, but his lyrics are still, you know, there are still lines that you want to write down, aren't there? But he had a new song called Jackie's Always Happy When She's Up on the Stage, which starts with a couplet. Jackie's always happy when she's up on the stage. I've made my claim. Now let me explain. Which I love. I just love that as an as an introduction to a song. I loved that he did Speedway, which obviously isn't a, a new song, yeah. but I just I just still love that line. Rumors won't rest until the earth that wants me finally has me. Until the hearse that becomes me finally takes me. Until this ugly mouth gets silenced, good and proper. And that reminded me of the end of the show because he sort of he looked at his watch and he was like he kept he kept doing this gag where he was he got his notes out and I'm just going mm. to refer to my notes and it was five to one. He looked up and he said, "I think we've just got one one song left." And he did his song and it finished on the beat and he was like to the second, just walked off and everybody stood there hoping there'd be an encore and of course there wasn't. Maybe by that point this whole thing had already blown up. But we were so blissfully unaware of it in the room. We were just thinking that was great. Yeah, it probably had. It probably had. I'm sure it was. I'm sure that was engineered by by him. It did remind me, though, just generally of that sort of suspension of cynicism you get in a, a live performance in in the room. It's just always there's just something joyous and magical about seeing someone like that on stage, and the reactions are kind of innocent from the crowd. And then outside, of course, you have the commentators. The, the Twitter sphere, everything mm. they're sort of actually doing the the commentary on the guy and what he's done wrong, and it's sort of it made me a bit sad in a funny kind of way. But it's, it's even it's even more of a bubble for that kind of performance because there must have only been about hundred people there, and you know to our right there's David Williams in his new moustache, sort of bopping his head furiously at the front, and you know trying to take videos, and then what well, Keris Matthews was there, and some dude from Game of Thrones that I don't really know because I don't really know Game Which of Thrones. Which one was there from Game of Thrones? John someone. Oh yeah, yeah. you Not said John... I thought it was John Snow. No. And you're like, no, that's actually a character. The actor's name is John, is, is John someone. <laughs> All the information. It was nice to hear that little Spanish intervention in there because Morrissey famously has, has this huge Latino fan base, right? He moved to LA and no one exactly knows how it happens, but the Latino population of LA kind of completely embraced him something to do with this sort of outsider status. I remember this because my wife, a, a seminal moment in our courtship was her forcing me to watch this Morrissey documentary. It was actually sort of the first full day that we spent together and it was ended with this, with this Morrissey documentary. And the two things I remember about it were these scenes of these Latino fans and also this bizarre sequence where it sort of follows him. It's kind of excruciating. It follows him around L.A., and sort of he pops in to have tea with Nancy Sinatra <laughs> and the camera's there and, the, and actually no so she comes to visit him and he, in his sort of oddly chintzy LA mansion having a cup of tea having a very banal conversation and then he's driving around the streets in his um in his uh, open top uh, convertible with a with a husky in the passenger <laughs> seat but he did say I, I had a quick look at the documentary again last night and they asked him sort of why he liked Mexican people. He said, <laughs> I really like Mexican people. I find them so terribly nice and they have fantastic hair and fantastic skin and usually really good teeth. Great combination. <laughs> <laughs> How does your wife as an obsessive paid up Morrissey fan feel about his descent into mad reactionary politics? I don't think she cares, actually. <laughs> I don't think she cares. I think Claire's taken the view that he's always been a little bit rum. I think she was more bothered by, she was, read, she was avidly reading his autobiography which are the one without a paragraph break. Does it not have a paragraph yeah, break? Yeah, it doesn't. I think our reviewer, Andrew Harrison, described it as just, just around the time I joined the New States when he described it as an auto-hagiography, which I always thought was quite <laughs> a good phrase. But um, she stopped reading it when he describes cooling off 
his this is when he's a teenager or something he says i didn't really like the new york dolls anymore they spent too much time chasing the bearded clam which leads us quite nicely onto our next item yes (laughs) we can we can we can segue from there we should probably say that all the bbc six music shows are available on the red button certainly the morrissey one is during the week they had alt j loyal Karner, mogwai and Robert robert plant I don't know how well it translates, but do load up the Morrissey one on, on iPlayer because it was, it, was, it was very good. And imagine being in there when it was actually a lot funnier than it looks on a screen. And I think I'll get his new record. It's out in November. It's also Lo- got, it's got a song called When You Open Up Your Legs. Yeah. I you- thought, well, you know, once you get to that stage in your career, what, what do you write about? You're sort of running out of subjects, aren't you? He said that one was about <laughs> cycling anyway. Yeah. <laughs> but the, so carry on. The album itself is called, I think he said it was called Hippopotamus. It's actually called Low in High School. And it's got a picture of a child wielding an axe on the front. (laughs) The lead single off Morrissey's new album is Spent the Day in Bed, and here's a clip of that now. I love my bed And I recommend that you stop Watching the news Because the news contrives to frighten you So having looked at the drug wars of Baltimore and life in post-Katrina New Orleans, David Simon of The Wire has now turned his hand to the sort of the early years of the porn industry in New York, 1971. Scary world out here, babe. Thoroughbred like you, we would own this damn street. I'm gonna keep what I earn. I don't need you. I don't need anybody else to hold my money. Frankie, you stole Tommy everything, including today's thing. Frankie, he owes everybody in New York City. My name's Vincent. My twin brother. We don't have the cash to cover his debt. We're gonna get it and deliver. No late payments. Understood. Everyone against the van. If I was you, gentlemen, I would take any offer that moved your ladies off the pavement. Been running women off the streets for a while now. The parlors are all paying us. But this, it's not news. We've called out city corruption before. There's been a change. In the law, something about community standards. What about community standards? Apparently, New York has none. (laughs) Pure innovation. See, we can turn a dime into a dollar just like that. Hush not, child. I want to learn how to make movies. And don't if they can sell that in Europe, it's not going to be lost what we can make and sell it here. How do you know? It's America, right? Just move on. There's going to be an opportunity coming your way. Move on. Once in a lifetime thing. So what am I looking at? Your future. When do we start? Not exactly the start of the porn industry, of course. I've actually got a compilation of 1920s pornography, which I bought in a sex museum in Paris, which is it's quite entertaining. I mean, the little short films, they're, they're, they're silent movies with, like, crazy piano what playing. What format is this on? It's on DVD. Right. It's called Polisson et Galipette. I don't know what that actually means. And it's really entertaining. Yeah, like short films, one of them set in a nunnery. There are nuns, there are dogs involved, all sorts, all sorts of things. And it's quite, it's quite risque. So, uh, yeah, the porn industry did not start in New York in 1971. I just remembered, actually, that in university, a friend of mine bought me an anthology of Victorian pornography. Yep. 
photography. Yeah. 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 It goes back a long way. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> back to the juice. Why did pornography begin in 1971? I don't know. But having seen two episodes of this, the first episode of which is an hour and a half long, so that's basically a feature film. I think it runs over eight episodes or something. You can see that what David Simon and George Pelicanos, the novelist, his writing partner, are going to do is to pinpoint this moment, which is a very seedy Times Square, lots of prostitution, and just the very beginnings of shops selling sex books and sex paraphernalia. The very, very beginnings of pornographic films, which at the moment are little sort of, again, almost Victorian-looking viewing booths, you know, like those things that you you have like sort of early 3D images yeah. in them, which play very, I presumably like very short kind of pornographic reels. And then the beginnings of under-the-counter movies, which you see in the first two episodes, is just the product of a guy with a camcorder and two blokes in plastic Viking hats. And some Campbell's... And some Campbell's potato, potato soup, soup, which is sprayed onto the girls' faces at one point. <laughs> the idea that the, the porn industry is a kind of intrinsically unsexy thing to, to make a film or a TV show about is, is interesting. And that's been done before. Boogie Nights was brilliant. Paul Thomas Anderson, Boogie Nights. It was three hours long, showed the descent of Dirk Diggler, the central character from the kind of hedonism and glamour of the idea of being a porn star hmm. to this kind of drug-addled guy who just nearly completely self-destructs. And it was also done quite well in Lovelace, the Amanda Secret film about the deep throat actress, Linda Borman. And what they did in that film was they told the... It was quite novel, really. They told the story twice. They showed her becoming the deep throat star and everything was very glamorous. Then they went right back to the start and they showed the, the reality of it, the violence, the sort of molestation, the misogyny and everything. So the idea of this thing being kind of unsexy to watch is mm. there from the start. Do you think it is unsexy? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I've only seen two episodes, but it sort of feels grimy and, mm. and quite sort of brutal in a way that we kind of understand that now about this world. The prostitutes, Maggie Gillenhall is one of the central prostitutes, Candy. She's an unusual prostitute because she doesn't have a pimp. She's in control of herself. Mm. She also has the young son back home staying with the mother. She wears this amazing sort of blonde fright wig and you see her, you know, in the early hours of the morning with it off, with the black hair, looking tired, smoking counting up her money it's setting up an awful lot of characters but one of the things that amused me and I couldn't believe was that they've got James Franco to play a pair of twins <laughs> I had to text you didn't I and said is this actually happening because yeah because no other James Franco alikes were available I think if I was a male actor of that age I'd be just really pissed off <laughs> there must know, be loads of people who parts. almost get James yeah, Franco's yeah. part why is James Franco getting both of these parts it's kind of ridiculous and unnecessary he's kind of at the centre of the story isn't he him and his brother and he's sort of solid he has a moustache got a moustache like David Williams which he wears quite well and he's a sort of down on his luck barman who has a smart idea which is to get the waitresses wearing leotards um, and that brings in a huge number of punters and that's clearly going to be developed into his role in this sort of CD industry. Don't you find whenever you watch any film or TV show set in this era in America, it just looks like everyone's going to a fancy dress party? Do they get so overwhelmed by the fact that it's really cool to put big fake sideburns on people and like amazing checky, you know, suits and tweeds and massive afros and stuff? And I'm sure that not everybody looked exactly like that. That's what I kind of struggle with in this. I just read Emily Nussbaum's piece in The New Yorker about it. And, and we should say that Rachel Cook reviewed this in, in The New Statesman this week. And she picks out 
a couple of what she thinks are quite hoary cliches in it. And Nussbaum says the opposite, that it kind of explodes the cliches. But I just think it's very, very hard to escape from cliches. And as soon as you have someone stepping down the pavement, it's Saturday Night Fever. As soon as you have... <laughs> a dude in a rain jacket outside a movie theatre, it's taxi driver, it's layered on. And that's one of the things I think about something like The Wire that was so brilliant is, you know, I don't know the first thing about Baltimore. Mm. So I've got, I'm not coming to it with, with all of this baggage. But this, I am finding it difficult to kind of cut through that. Again, you see the, the fancy dress element of the... The American the hustle and, kind yes, of looks Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> On the cliches front, I mean, I'm sure this is knowing, but, you know, there's something unbearably, you know, that scene in Naked Gun Two and a Half where they have sex and the uh, <laughs> rockets explode and the torpedoes yeah. launch and the pistons pump and the oil is struck. There's a train going through a tunnel. Yeah, I mean, OK, fine, that's with a wink, but it still, it still felt a bit dodgy. And then, and then what Rachel Cook pointed out in her piece was the prostitute who sits there with the john all night you know not having sex but instead watching a tale of two cities and and weeping at the end yeah which tart is, with a heart tart with image, a heart yeah. stuff. but there is some good stuff there it, it is it is atmospheric it's just it hasn't quite got its got its hooks into me i don't think talking of the sex i was wondering what you thought about this but emily nussbaum pointed out that there was a surprising amount of male flesh on display mm. I don't know if you thought that was... One of the prostitutes um, is sort of knocked around quite nastily by some dude who comes in with a sort of rape fantasy, which actually goes overboard and turns violent. It's quite tasteful, actually. Nussbaum points out that half a dozen of these episodes are directed by women, and the camera focuses on her after the event, sort of, you know, nursing her bruises and stuff. But the actual... Your point of view, the eye of the, the viewer is on this kind of massive man-mountain mm. flesh in the background, mm. tiny pair of Y fronts and a mm. huge gut. It's a very clever way of saying, like, forget what's just happened to her. She's also having to put up with this every night. Mm. You know, you cannot turn these people away. This is, this is what she's having to sleep with. And it's quite a smart twist on the idea that there's a sort of wink-wink element to anything about the porn industry. Even if it's looking at the dark underbelly, you're basically getting to see loads of naked women. Well, here you're getting to see loads of naked men, not all of whom are, are that nice to look at. Yeah, that's true. And we should say that although the pimps have this sort of cartoonish quality, one of the main ones, Cece, who's played by Gary Carr, I think it, that is one of the strongest, along with Maggie Gyllenhaal, that's one of the strongest performances. And he's in the sort of great tradition in which The Wire brought Dominic West and Idris Elba onto American screens. He's Gary Carr and he's actually a Brit. I think he might be destined for great things. Not as great as James Franco, obviously. Who, who also directed an episode. Who also he? He's directed two episodes and I have actually read James Franco's book of short fiction. I reviewed it for The Times many years ago. Nothing survives of it on my shelves apart from two quotations in my notebook, one of which I found last night, which was a quotation with these two boys discussing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Ronnie said he liked Michelangelo because he was the funniest. I like Michelangelo, he said. He tells all the jokes. He also has a book of poems, and I just wanted to read oh, a, a short excerpt from one poem, which is called Ledger, and it's about Heath Ledger. There had been a time when we were up for the same roles. Ten things I hate about you, based on the taming of the shrew, and the patriot. Funny, you were Australian and so was Mel. You were the knight in a knight's tale. It's a man of boundless talent. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. So for this week's non-anniversary, which, as I'm sure you know by now, is a non-anniversary of a non-culturally significant event, we're going to briefly talk about the Garbage Pail Kids, which launched in 1985. So that's 32 years ago. And there's a documentary called 30 Years of Garbage out now. I'm not quite sure what happened to those intervening two years. <laughs> maybe it took that long to get funded. I think, it's a, I think it's a crowdfunded film. If you don't know, these were cards, like baseball cards, launched by Tops, an American company. They were aimed at kids as a sort of playground thing. And they were just sort of a series of really kind of horrific images. Based on the Cabbage Patch Kids, obviously, um, they were sued by Cabbage Patch for their rip-offs, settled out of court, I think. And they're a very simple concept. They're basically a load of sort of grotesque-looking children that had a limited number of easily illustrated bodily functions to explore. Tops were interested in vomit, hairiness and methane and, you know, farting and things like that. I didn't have any because I was a bit too young, but there was this boy that I was sort of in awe of, a family friend who had them. And I distinctly remember watching him sort through his Garbage Pail Kids cards while he was eating... Twix with Hubba Bubba squirted on top of it. So he was eating bubble gum and chocolate together and he was sorting through his garbage pail kitchen. That's quite a garbage pail thing to do. Exactly. And the ones I remember particularly, um, as I say, the themes were not that varied. There was Richie Wretch, who was vomiting, and there was Upchuck, who was vomiting. And there was also Overflow, who was basically just a giant baby that's filled its nappy and it had lots of liquid coming out the side. There was Bloated Blair whose face was very fat and looked a bit like an ass. Um, and there was this very, very unpolitically correct one called Armpit Brit, and she just happened to have hairy armpits. <laughs> and then, weirdly enough, there was one called Babbling Brook, who was just on the phone a lot. <laughs> I think maybe children of our generation could be divided into those who had garbage pail kids and those who didn't. I certainly wasn't allowed Did them. you ever see them? Yeah, I had a friend, Mark, who had them, but I, there's no way I would have been allowed them. Were, were, would they... you have been allowed to eat Twix with bubblegum on it? It wouldn't have occurred to me. He had to swallow the bubble gum. That was the amazing The most thing. elaborate confections I prepared were based on things eaten in Calvin and Hobbes cartoons, mm. where he kind of creates these enormous sandwiches. Oh, yeah, so you did that. Uh, yeah, so yeah. a sandwich with everything yeah, you yeah, could yeah, have in yeah, the sandwich, yeah, yeah. with 12 yeah. slices of bread, yeah. But the claim for sort of highbrow appreciation for Garbage Pail Kids is that they were created by Art Spiegelman, who went on to be kind of the premier graphic novelist. He wrote this book, Mouse about the Holocaust in which the cats are the Nazis and the mice are the Jews. And it's extraordinary to think that he was in this tiny room coming up with this stuff, working for Tops, 
while at the same time preparing the first volume of Mouse for publication. <laughs> and he said he was really pissed off that Tops didn't want to credit any of the creators, presumably so that they could just hire other people and it wouldn't kind of have any real ownership to it. And Spiegelman was really pissed off by this. But then this sort of highbrow literary publisher, Pantheon, who were about to publish Mouse, were kind of so relieved that Spiegelman's name was <laughs> not attached the creators to this. of Garbage yeah, Pail Kids. Exactly. <laughs> comes an award-winning, powerfully moving, you know, symbolically rich work about the Holocaust. You know, it just doesn't... It doesn't <laughs> From the creator it. of Overflow yeah. and Upchuck. So happy non-aversary Garbage Pail Kids. You've been listening to The Back Half with Tom Gatti and Kate Mossman. You can get more information on the subjects we've been discussing in our show notes. You can read Rachel Cook on The Juice in the current issue of The New Statesman. And we'll be back with you same time next week. I also heard that we have about eight listeners in Japan. Hello to those listeners. This may be because our theme music, which we enjoy very much, is by the Japanese space rock band Pistol Jazz. And we're playing you out with Godspeed.